Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I will be your host of this episode of Secure Talk. And today I'm here with Brian King from AHT. Um, this is part two of a two part podcast talking about the importance of cyber insurance. Hey, Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Mark. How are you? pretty good. We had some uh, some technical difficulties, some schedule difficulties, um, but because of those, I've learned a few tricks, and um, I'm now using the latest version of Skype, and it's actually working together in a kind of friendly manner with our recording software. So um, looking forward to getting back into our conversation. Maybe just to uh, kind of recap uh, or to kind of kick things off, could you again talk maybe just to give a short summary of your, your background and what you do? And then, um, you know, talk a little bit about the importance of cybersecurity. And then we can, uh, excuse me, cyber insurance. And then we can get back into and kind of continue on from our previous conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, uh, name's Brian King. I'm an assistant vice president here at AHT on the property casualty sign. Uh, I've been in the insurance industry for almost a decade now. Uh, AHT is one of the top 100 brokers in terms of size, but they are niche specialists uh, in terms of what they focus in. We are most known for our technology and life science practice, as well as our NGO practice and government contractors out of uh, our DC office and our Seattle office here. Um, we, I th an interesting fact that I didn't point out on the last uh, conversation, Mark, was that uh, HT has been selling cyber insurance and placing that for customers since before cyber insurance was coined. Um, we've been around for 100 years, but we've been doing this uh, for cyber insurance, I think, in the early 80s. So so what was it called originally? Or was it just regular business insurance or, or, or what? You know, that's a great question. That was before my time um, in the insurance industry. But I, I think when they had it, it just came out as what it was, what is formally known in the industry anyway, is privacy uh, insurance. Okay, interesting. Well, um, and again, we, we had a really long conversation um, uh, a few weeks ago. Just to give a recap, I mean, what are some of the common applications of cyber insurance and why as a corporate executive, why would I be interested in cyber insurance? Yeah, so insurance, like everything else, uh, the whole purpose of it is to make you whole after a loss. So uh, cyber insurance in particular um, has two facets to it. Number one, it steps in as your pocketbook in the event of a cyber breach loss uh, or a systems disruption, depending on if your policy is set up right. And by that, I mean it will pay the legal, the forensics, the business interruption or business income loss, it will pay uh, the third party notifications, uh, defend you from lawsuits, it will um, address a, a plethora of items including PCI compliance issues if you have that endorsement onto your policy. Um, the second avenue of it for some executives uh, that they like instead is that it's more of a uh, turnkey solution to a firm that may not have 
the time or the individual that is dedicated to doing the desktop exercises from a cyber breach and having all those relationships aligned from an attorney, uh, the public relations firms, those forensics, uh, forensic accountants and forensic IT forensic firms uh, to all come in and respond. Uh, as you can imagine, takes quite a bit of effort if you were to go out there and put it together yourself, uh, particularly after a breach occurs. Um, for the folks that purchase cyber insurance, they notify the insurer and basically they handle it and walk through it from there with your adjuster uh, and the attorney that's assigned. I, I think that sounds like a huge benefit because, you know, I mean, for most companies, the first time there's a breach is or whenever there's a breach, it, it, it typically is, you know, everybody's kind of in uncharted territory unless they have a, a really comprehensive plan in place, including all of the different strategic partners that they're going to reach out to. But if they can go to their insurance company who would say, hey, you know what, we work with these attorneys, we work with these forensic specialists, uh, you know, we work with these organizations to help look at the logs and kind of determine what actually happened here. Uh, that's going to make my life a hell of a lot easier. Um let me ask you, I mean, I guess before we jump into the new part of the conversation, uh, one of the things that we closed up with, with last uh, conversation was the the importance of cybersecurity for GDPR different scenarios, right? And so right. You, you talked about some of the, you know, the, the business losses or, or potentially some of the forensics, uh, or, you know, the other services that you're going to hire and there would be, the insurance would cover that. But with GDPR, um, you know, one of the big sticks that's causing or that's pushing or motivating companies to become GDPR compliant it are the fines, right? So how does right. cyber uh, insurance help there? Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned on our, our last podcast, so GDPR uh, can be affirmatively added to your policies uh, when asked and when requested. So again, making sure that uh, your CFO, your general counsel, or your CISO, whoever is responsible for the uh, cyber insurance placements, make sure that their broker is getting that uh, endorsement put on. Um, and what it does is, and, and there's two different avenues to do this, but the one that's more widely available in the market now is it provides regulatory defense coverage and fines and penalty cover uh, if they, if in the event of a breach, um, the government of the EU assesses you for that breach and being in violation of GDPR. Um, the policy will actually step in to protect itself. It's a first party coverage. Uh, meaning my loss is not somebody else's, and it will respond. The The difference is, is it's the trigger on most of the policies out there is it has to be a privacy breach situation. Um, as example, here in the U.S., we have HIPAA audits that occur all the time. Uh, cyber policies traditionally don't pick up coverage for an audit. And while it's been enforced for uh, oh, starting in May of this year, um, I think we still haven't seen whether or not they're only going to respond to breaches or whether or not they're conducting audits uh, for those fines and assessments. So if the trigger isn't correct, the cover may or may not respond to that. Yeah, what we've seen and have been told more often than not is the... Um 
the, the fines will be assessed in response to some type of complaint or breach that mm-hmm. leads to an investigation that shows that um, an organization um, willfully did not prepare for for the um, for GDPR compliance and all the different you know aspects of peoples and process and technology um, that should be aligned with the privacy regulations uh, under GDPR. Um, I, don't, I haven't heard of any just kind of ad hoc audits. Um, that's not to say it won't happen. And there are a lot of different regulatory bodies in the EU that will be enforcing um, GDPR, but we, have, we haven't heard of any kind of uh, proactive or, or ad hoc audits. It, they're typically in response to a complaint. Um, yeah. And I think the key point there, Mark, is, is as you stated, you have to show a good faith effort right. toward this as well. Right. right. Um, okay. So let's jump on. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ask you the last time we spoke was, um, you know, tell me some stories, uh, <laughs> both good and bad, in terms of, you know, how insurance has helped or maybe some companies that um, felt a lot of pain because they didn't have insurance. Yeah, absolutely. So let me let me kind of piggyback on what we just talked about with GDPR, and then I'll lead into a series of claims examples. Um, the first one is one that wasn't a claim, but it could have been a very bad situation. And, and, and what I'm going to say is this: is that we all know how exciting it is to land that big sale, and, and hopefully your audience includes the chief sales officers and other sales uh, folks. Um, that are listening in, but we all know how exciting it is to land that big sale as it's important for the company's continuance and growth. It's important for the client testimonial list. Um, it's important for the reputation of the firm and even the salesperson who's attempting to close that deal. The issue is that, you know, after going through all that vetting process and getting the client to even agree to sit down takes a lot of effort. So the last thing anybody wants to do is create a bottleneck or issues in the contract signing phase, especially when it pertains to the insurance and indemnity sections. Um, My recommendation, and this leads into kind of a situation that we had, was whenever you all, uh, whenever a client is entering into a sales contract, they, particularly if you're a tech company uh, or have any kind of cyber component, you should enter it with cybersecurity in mind. And uh, particularly with the regards to the collection of data, how it will be used, who's liable for it and when, um, because it may be a great sale for the company uh, in landing that big deal, but it may, or for the, for the sale, it may be a great sales win, but it may be a terrible company win in the event of a breach. So the situation I had was this, and this happened recently. Um, I have a software as a service uh, client that entered into an agreement with a Fortune 100 company, uh, whereby the SaaS company would, under the agreement, be responsible for all data privacy claims per the wording. And the issue was, was this, is that even though the client they worked for uh, collected the raw data uh, and customer information and provided the access to that data in the Fortune uh, 100 company's system for this uh, particular uh, client. They, the way the agreement was set up, there was no clear definition on who was the controller and who was the processor of that data, which is huge in, in GDPR. Um, 
as well as to whom the responsibility was with for a failure to secure that data or the wrongful collection of that data. Okay, so um, just just let me clarify yeah. here because I mean you're right. There's a huge difference between the controller and the processor, and from my understanding, the controller um, ultimately has the the most or the highest level of responsibility, right. and all things come back to the controller. So in this case, the the data originated with the Fortune 100 company, but it was u- being used um, or somehow manipulated on this SaaS platform. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, it was a target marketing platform. Got you. Okay. So it, in, in our understanding, the controller would be the Fortune 100 company. The processor would be the SaaS platform. Yes, that's correct. Although even though it wasn't spelled out in the contract and based on how that contract was written, this is what we talked about with the client and there, we got the writing counsel involved in this too, but um, we told them that based on our interpretation of the language, it is very gray in terms of whose responsibility would it apply to in the event of a GDPR situation or any kind of privacy breach. Uh, with relation to the data of which they are, from their system's connectivity, going to be able to access. Um, it just, from the wording of it, pinned it seemed to pin it all on the uh, SaaS company, and, which is kind of congruent with what we see for tech contracts or any contracts for that matter, uh, Mark, is I always have a say that whenever you get a contract, it's absolutely written in that other party's favor. Or the other way to put it is my contract, my benefit. Right. Um, and so, you know, in this particular case, we didn't have a breach situation, thank goodness, um, yet, let's knock on wood. Uh, but we were able to be involved with that client and as well as get their attorneys involved um, and help guide them through this because it could have been pretty nasty. Okay, so um, you you were looking at this. Okay, so the SaaS company was your client. Yep. Um, they had signed off on all responsibility. Uh, probably, that wasn't the smartest thing to do. Um, and you know whether they can technically even do that. I, I know that controllers they always want to make sure that the processors are compliant. But yep. just because the processor is compliant doesn't mean the controller's off the hook. In fact, if the controller could be, if they um, acquired that data in a improper manner that's that's their that's their problem that's their error and the processor might not even be privy to that information but let me go back a second so i think what you're saying here is you know your client um the 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 processor or the SaaS company they were looking at this contract and they were like uh yeah i guess we're going to sign off on it and you guys were able to come in and 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 say from a liability point of view um look we can, you don't want to sign this, right? Is that, is that where you're going with this? That's, that's exactly what we did. And, and we told him, we said, you don't want to sign this because you have no control over whether or not notification was given to those individual customers. Right. Yeah. So So that's huge. So that's a benefit, not only of just, I mean, that's not even insurance. That's just having a trusted advisor that you can leverage. And if they would have signed that, um, it might've made it more difficult for them to get coverage, or it might increase the premium, I would think, of the coverage that they purchase. I would tell you that as a past underwriter, if you became aware of it, now, no, there are things that you just assume, um, but if you became aware that that was habitual to them and those were the types of agreements, yeah, there's going to be a lot more issues because your exposure goes up a lot more. Somebody's going to target a Fortune 100 company, um, they're getting hit, 
everybody's getting hit, but Fortune 100 companies uh, by nature tend to have a little bit more information. So wherever you can get in, you're going to get in. Right. Um, but that being said, so to answer some of your questions as to claims examples uh, that we've seen here in the firm, um, I'd be happy to talk to you about you know at least three different scenarios we've had, as well as a scenario that I uh, actually last week uh, came up with one. And as you can imagine, cyber breach claims churn pretty quickly right. uh, as far as the start. So um, I'll start with the ones that have had coverage, what that looked like, and then the one that hasn't uh, and what's currently undergoing there from what we've heard. Um, we had an online retailer that utilized some software that encrypted credit card data. And they basically whited it out with X's, if you can picture that in your head. Uh, however, unbeknownst to them, it did not white out American Express card numbers because they are one digit off from Visa and MasterCard. So their their platform had said, you know, if it's... God, how many numbers are in a credit card number? <laughs> yeah, I, I have to. So I, this, is the, this is the default. If we see a number with this pattern um, and this many digits, we're going to assume it's a, uh, it's a credit card and we are going to encrypt it or de-identify you know, de de it, something like that, right? Yeah. yeah, so it's unusable. But lo and behold, American Express has um, a different numbering convention. And uh, so all those cards were not encrypted. Is that That's what you're correct. Yeah. So, so American Express basically came to our client and said, "Hey, we had one million uh, records that were breached, and we believe they all came from you." And understandably, our client said, "You know, it wasn't them. We purchased the software that encrypts all of our credit card data." Uh, but they did the forensics to prove that to American Express, uh, which was about the the cost of that was about three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Um, just in the forensics cost. And during that part, they came out to or they came to find out that it was in fact coming from them. The breach in the, in the issues was them. And, uh, they were now responsible for the payment card reimbursements and other financial losses, um, to American express. Cause you can imagine they had to reissue all cards. They did the credit monitoring, um, et cetera. And, the claim itself actually didn't come out to much in the grand scheme of things. Now I say this from our perspective based on the losses that we've seen, but uh, it was only like $800,000 with the credit monitoring, the lawsuit costs, the uh, reissuing of the cards, et cetera. So there's a claims example where the cyber insurance did come in and uh, when they found out about the breach and they were doing the investigations, when the, that allegation came they turned the uh, claim into the carrier um, and said, you know, we need the services that are provided here. This is what we're being alleged. And the cyber policy responded to uh, determine if there was a breach, to what extent, and then pay the cost uh, associated with that breach. Um, well, we've I'm, I'm sure ahead. they were glad they had that policy. I mean, you said, you said it didn't amount to that much, but... You know, eight hundred thousand is eight hundred thousand, right? And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eight, I mean, if you're, uh, I mean, imagine being in the the IT chair there or the person who was responsible for that um, processing these, you know, million dollars worth of transactions, and having that on your plate. Uh, I don't know too many situations, and, and we see this with the larger claims too, um, where 
an executive officer is not going to come down and demand some sort of action, right? If somebody was asleep at the wheel or, or whatever. Um, I think the ones that are most widely known that we see is, I mean, we all know about the PayPal incident that happened this last November um, with when they acquired the TO networks. I think in mergers and acquisitions, you also see a lot of this play uh, because we've saw it with PayPal. Uh, they basically acquired, uh, acquired a um, support firm, uh, if you will. I'm trying to, I blanked on the word there, but uh, they noticed a security vulnerability in that firm's platform and it affected about 1.6 million users. Uh, and this happened last November. Um, you know, Verizon, they discovered when they acquired user, uh, Yahoo that it had a major breach of about 3 billion user accounts. And in both of those situations, I'd have to confirm the PayPal one, but I know on the Yahoo acquisition, Verizon was able to knock off, I think, $350 million off the price tag um, when Yahoo was being acquired because of that. And all of these situations have a financial impact. And, and I think the point of that and what we see in that is that you don't – don't think that someone at Yahoo didn't lose their job over a $350 million price cut um, from a breach. Yeah. And, and you know, we saw this. And, and in some cases, it's even worse. You take the Equifax breach that occurred last year and you saw all the stuff that went on with those executives and then the other people that were in the know there. I mean, the first person who generally has a responsibility is the CISO. Uh, and when we see these big major breaches, particularly in public companies that have more scrutiny, those folks are often forced to resign. Um, and if it's a public company, it's to give basically face to actions being taken. Um, yeah. And so the CISO may go, the CEO may be forced to resign and other key players in both the IT and the executive department. Um, so it's you know, to, to us, we look at insurances. Yes, it's a financial mechanism to offset a lot of those costs. Um, however, it's never going to, at least in my opinion, in a major, major breach, the targets, the Home Depots, et cetera, none of those folks ever bought enough cyber insurance. So I would say to anybody that's listening, if you buy cyber insurance and sit back and do nothing, then I would rather you take that money, don't buy cyber insurance, and beef up your own internal risk management. Um, and cyber insurance is not that expensive, so I don't know how much you know five grand would go for you if you were a small business company uh, in order to do that. But I for a million dollars, but I would I would more, and I think any underwriter, any good broker would say the same thing: don't buy insurance if all you want to do is sit back and not do anything from that so first first order of business is uh you know secure your your platform secure your company um and then and then yeah also get some insurance because there's probably nothing out there that's 100 percent secure um, accidents happen but the likelihood of something bad happening is greatly reduced if you've taken the right precautionary measures that's correct yeah and it, and it can keep your company from going out of business um you know, the, the one that I had that recently just occurred is we have a uh, venture back company um, 
And the insured elected not to purchase cyber insurance despite being an online platform uh, for folks to utilize. Well, one of their vendors had a security breach of all that affected all of their, uh, or not all of their, but a majority of their user data. Um, and via the contract was only required to notify our client, not the affected individuals. There's a limitation of liability associated with it, et cetera. But we're talking about uh, $75,000 or uh, 75,000 user records. Um, and from our client's perspective, this goes back to my earlier comment. Our client doesn't have a turnkey solution or cyber insurance in place. So they had to set up all of their own vendors for the credit monitoring, the legal, the securing of counsel um, to both protect them as well as sue this vendor um, to recoup some of these costs, a public relations firm and a call center to deal with all of these influx of claims. All those things can be picked up under cyber insurance when it's done well. Um, of course, with the council, I think the other interesting thing, and I always recommend this to folks, is when even if you purchase cyber insurance, um, get a uh, conflict checked with that attorney to make sure that the people that you work with uh, that attorney doesn't also work with them. That could take up to 48 hours or so. Um, I think the more, because cyber insurance is so, uh, depending on what your you know, operation is, hours could mean millions of dollars to you if you're down or have a breach situation occur. Um, in this one, you know, the, luckily the, the co-founder and the CEO and the CFO we were able to provide a list to them of uh, breach vendors uh, just from associations and things that we've been involved in uh, for them to contact. But other folks, I mean, Mark, if uh, you probably know this as well, so you're a bad example. But uh, if you came up to uh, anybody, most other folks in the market uh, and said, you had a breach, I need you to go get all these people. I think a lot of folks might have a panic attack. Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, a, a really good presentation that I just recently watched at the ISSA Puget Sound chapter monthly meeting, I think it was two months back, uh, was from a, an executive here in the Seattle area. And, and she talked about having a game plan in place so that if something happens, you have um, a way to analyze how important it is. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have steps in place in terms of how to respond who to involve, who are the key stakeholders, what are the, who's going to handle the, the communication channels. Um, and then you have your, you know, your support team. So you, like you said, your attorneys, uh, your forensic people, uh, and, and the people who can actually go in and just shut things down and, and uh, get these, wh whoever has hacked your system back off your system. So uh, it's totally important. But most people, most organizations, you know, they've got a to-do list that's a mile long. And what we're talking about is, you know, about three quarters of the mile down the list. So, yeah. 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 And, and, you know, and I'll tell you, I mean, this this might help per, uh, put some things in perspective uh, for some of the listeners out there. But, you know, we had a denial of service attack um, occur on one of our clients and the attack caused a 22-hour outage to the company's website. And it continued with a degradation of services um, for about another five to six days. And the incident that occurred, it resulted in the company's liability or inability um, 
to sell off of their website uh, and, and sell subscriptions and, and the like there. And so from a business interruption standpoint, I mean, Mark, we're talking 22 hours. This was uh, uh, $750,000 in business interruption losses and an additional forty. Uh, was spent on forensic services. So, ouch! And, the, and and then there's the whole customer satisfaction, dissatisfaction. That's right. The, yeah. you know, I mean, how can you quantify if you've got you know 50 percent of those orders were first time orders, and people are like, well, you know, screw this, I'm not going back to that company. I'm going to go go across the cyber street and shop, do my shopping someplace else, right? Oh so, yeah, that's huge. Well, yeah. And, and and yeah, every operation is different. I mean, if you have guaranteed uptimes, all this sort of mess. I mean, that's there's a huge financial impact to it. And I think cybersecurity as well as contracts should be reviewed by everybody in the firm. And like so. you said, that's something that you as a security executive professional, that's what's part of the, the service that you bring to the table for your clients. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, hey, Brian, um, we're coming up on our on our time here. I've really enjoyed. I the, it, just like last time, this uh, this you know uh, conversation went very very quickly. Enjoyed it. I think there's a lot of valuable information there, and it's. Uh, I think what's important or what's interesting is that you know when we think about cybersecurity, you usually think about these guys sitting behind a computer, um, you know, working with different tools and techniques, but you know, sometimes we don't think about the legal aspects or the insurance side. And I think it's um, just like you said, maybe, you know, security, just making sure your platform is secure is definitely the priority. But when you're looking at an overall defense, um, you do need to look at insurance as well. So um, if any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, find out some more information, um, how, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, uh, they could call my direct line, which is uh, 206 three three six two nine six three uh you guys could also email me if you'd prefer i'm happy to answer any questions uh it's uh b is in bravo king k-i-n-g at a-h-t-i-n-s dot com awesome well hey brian thanks again for uh joining this episode of secure talk and uh, i look forward to crossing paths with you again soon yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk.